Well, I was telling everybody uh, earlier this morning, uh, and, and again, I, I'm not necessarily saying I condone this, okay? But how many of you have ever seen a horse race before? I'm not saying bet on the horse races. Please don't raise your hand for that, okay? How many of you have seen the horse races, right? And, and when you get the horses, right, they bring them out and they're all like giddy and they put them into the, the track, the, the gate there where they're about to release them. And the horses are just like, they can't wait to go. I feel like that today. I haven't preached in a month. It's a long time, okay? Preachers got to preach. So I, I'm just, I'm really excited for this word, this new series that we're getting into, and just really excited uh, for how I hope God is going to use it as we're going through uh, some of these difficult questions. And uh, a few months ago, I, I put out to the church, uh, we put out some flyers um, in the bulletins and around that you could ask questions, this series that we're going to do called Asking for a Friend. And, and so people gave me some questions. I was really grateful for those of you who filled out the questions. I got 18 responses. Um, I had hoped for a few more, but that's okay. And uh, we, we took a lot of those, and some of it was able to be melted down, put together for us to be able to tackle some of these questions. But I want to spend the next five weeks tackling some of these difficult questions. And here's why. Please hear me in this. Good theology matters. Okay? Good theology, Bible-based scriptural theology Probably not something you found on YouTube, but it matters. Okay, I dig at YouTube a lot because I don't like it. But we need to make sure that we're giving ourselves the opportunity to learn the truth about God's Word. But here's one of the problems that exists in Christianity. It has often been that it's not okay to ask questions. And I really want to change that for Family Life Church. I really want us to be in the place where we are comfortable asking questions. And here's why. Because you need answers. You're not going to get answers unless you ask questions. But there for so long, we've put this idea out. You just got to believe. You just got to have faith. If you have a question, that means you don't have faith. You don't believe and you probably don't love Jesus. Can we be uh, in agreement together? We would love to see that change and to say it is okay to ask questions. And I want to tell you this. Please hear this as well. God is not scared of your questions. You don't have a question in your mind that God is sitting on his throne right now and he goes, oh, they asked that? And he like runs to the angels and he goes, angels, what do we do? Did you hear that? That doesn't happen to God. There is nothing that frightens him with your questions. Listen, your pastors, you have a great pastoral staff, a very knowledgeable pastoral staff. Go to one of them and ask a question. And, and don't start with, I know this is a stupid question, but... No, just ask the questions because we need this. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks doing this from some of these anonymous questions that were submitted. But my hope really is that we as a church can get to the place where we become comfortable asking questions so that we can grow. All right. So the first thing I wanted to look at, and this was a number of questions that came in regarding this topic, was the idea of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? How do we get saved? Do we stay saved? We, then there, are just, there are a lot of questions. And, and to be fair, there are some very distinct denominational differences in the way that we interpret the Bible and salvation and how it works. Okay, So I want to take time this morning to talk about both sides of that. I want you to see what both of the arguments are. Um, and then really want to just kind of share with you my own thoughts and some of the reasons why I believe what I do believe, okay? Again, I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. I want to present you with what I believe the Word of God says, and I want you to make your own decision. 
But the first question that I was asked is this. Are we predestined or do we have free will? Here's the question. We can boil it down to this. Did God choose us or did we choose God? That's what it comes down to. And there is a very distinct difference in uh, the way scripture is interpreted as to how we're going to answer this question. We don't talk a lot at Family Life Church about denominational differences. Uh, We are an assembly of God church, and that means as an assembly of God church, we do have some distinct theology. Um, And a lot of that is probably in regards to Pentecost, in regards to spiritual gifts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, but in the area of salvation as well. And I really want to take time to teach on this because it is important that you know what we believe, what you believe, and to formulate a good theology. So in this camp, we have two ideas, and and please don't get too scared by this. This It's just the, the terminology, okay? We have Calvinism and we have Arminianism, okay? They're two totally different things. I want to explain them for you, okay? John Calvin, who is the father of Calvinism, okay? And then Armenianism comes from Armenia. I don't know where that, I have actually no idea where Armenianism came from. Calvinism can be boiled down to this idea. That God himself chose through his sovereignty who he was going to save and by extension, who he was going to reject, okay? Armenianism is the idea that God presented the means of salvation through Jesus to all of humanity and left it up to them whether or not they would choose to pursue relationship with God or to reject God. Again, it comes down to Calvinism, did God choose us, or Armenianism, did we choose God? Okay, And so I want to take some time to look at just two key scriptures here. Again, there are a lot of scriptures around these two ideas. These two are just kind of uh, some that point to the very essential ideas, and we want to discuss them. So Calvinism, Romans 8, 29, and 30, it says this. God knew his people. In other translations, it says he predestined or preordained. God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. Having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given the, having given them standing, he gave them his glory. Right? So here's, there's two interpretations to the way that we look at this scripture. Calvinism is saying God through his sovereignty, sovereignty meaning that God chooses everything. Okay, God's hand is on everything. God, through his sovereignty, chose who he was going to save. That's the idea behind Calvinism. Armenianism is the idea that leans into God's omniscience. Omniscience meaning God knows everything. So saying in advance, God knew who was going to be saved, even though it was going to be their decision. These are the two different interpretations. Now, moving on to, and it should say 2 Peter uh, for Armenianism. Did I get that changed? No, it should say, but that's okay. Second Peter 3, 9. I think on the screen it's wrong. It says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone, say everyone, everyone. wants everyone to repent. Okay. Now, here are the two different camps, Calvinism, Arminianism. I will tell you, uh, I fall into the category of Arminianism, and there are a couple of questions that I pose in the two Calvinism that have brought me to this point. Number one, 
In Hebrews chapter 2, 9, we read that God died for all. Why would the Bible tell us God died for all instead of saying God only died for some? In Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus tells the disciples a parable of the seeds, why would seed matter as to where it is planted or who receives it if God has already chosen? Okay? Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, the great commission to the disciples when he tells them, go into the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything I have taught you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Here's my question. If God has already chosen who he's going to save, then why does evangelism matter at all? Why would we go into the world to tell other people about Jesus if God himself has already chosen who he's going to save. So that's my other question. Uh, Hebrews 12, 15 was the warning not to miss out on the grace of God. 1 Peter 3, 18 says that the atoning blood of Jesus was for all. Would God want his blood to be limited? In fact, we know um, probably many of you could recite John three sixteen. God sent his only son into the world so that the world could know him and be saved, right? He wanted the whole world to be saved by him. So why would he just say, save a part? Uh, same thing for First uh, John two two says that he gave this as a sacrifice for the world. And so that being said, I come to the place where I, my my belief and I believe scripturally we have to come to the place of believing God has given us a choice as to whether or not we will serve Him. Now, this is very important, especially in the next question that we're going to tackle. But just to stay here and understand this for a second, if God is the chooser then God is also the rejecter. I think theologically that's a really hard thing to, to square, okay? Meaning, you know, we tell each other, you should tell your neighbor about Jesus, right? You should tell your family about Jesus. But if we believe that God has already chosen who he's going to save, you could talk to your family until he's blue in the face, but really there are some who believe God has either chosen them or rejected them. He's either accepted them or he's not going to accept them. And that makes evangelism, which is a very big part of what we do as a church, really kind of a moot point at that point. And so I really can't settle that one. So here's the question that comes out of that, of that other part of Calvinism and Arminianism. Can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Again, there is a Calvinist understanding of what it means to be saved, and there are other denominational ideas as well. And we're going to explore these for just a second. But the idea that the atoning blood of Jesus either covers us forever and anything and everything we would ever do for the rest of our lives, or it only covers us for as long as we remain in right relationship with God. So let's explore those two ideas for just a second. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, this would kind of be the for now category. It says this, It is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age that is to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Now, what this really comes down to is an idea of how fragile your salvation is. How many of you have been in church for like 30 plus years? Okay, quite a few of you. Tell me if any of these statements ring a bell. If you are at the movie house and Jesus returns, 
you're not going to heaven. If you have dancing at your wedding or go to a dance, and this is just a free thing for everybody, okay? For those of you who feel like you can't dance, okay? If you bite your lip, it looks like you can. Like, if I'm just doing this, it's nothing. Watch. It's like, whoa, that guy can dance. That's amazing. So just free advice. If you want to look like you're doing more than you're doing, just bite your bottom lip. It's, it's perfect. But if you dance, you're not going to heaven. If you're at the bowling alley and they serve alcohol there and Jesus comes back, you are not going to heaven. If you get into a car accident and the last word that comes out of your mouth as you're having that accident is a potty word, you're not going to heaven. And, and so we have this one side is this idea of the fragility of your salvation. It could just be lost in a second. You could do one thing and be gone, Okay. Then on the other side, kind of leaning into to again this idea of Calvinism, predestination, you may have heard it termed this way, being once saved, always saved, is this idea that when Jesus died, the blood of Jesus atoned for every single thing you've ever done or ever will do, and from the moment you accept Jesus into your heart, it no longer matters what you do, you are always going to be good before God. So when we look at Hebrews chapter 6, and it says about the impossibility of restoring to righteousness those who have turned and walked away from God. We're not talking about somebody who sinned, okay? The Bible does not say anybody who sins cannot be restored. If that were the case, we should all go home right now. I don't know if you need to know this or not. You've never been told this before. I'm not sinless either, okay? I don't live a sinless life. I'm like this close to perfection, but just like Paul, I've got my thorn in the flesh, right? Why is that funny? <laughs> the people who know you best hurt you the most. It's, it's <clears throat> we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm, this is not about the idea that sin disqualifies us from our eternal paradise with Almighty God. This chapter, this verse, these verses specifically is talking about the idea of apostasy, which is to say, Someone who had right relationship with God, who accepted Jesus as their Savior, who then turns and by decisions of their own, deciding to live a lifestyle outside of what is scriptural and biblical, has chosen a different path. Now, one of the ways that we can truly understand this is through the word sin itself in the Greek New Testament. The word sin in the New Testament in Greek is the word hamartia. And it just means to miss the mark, okay? So what happens is, how many of you are archery hunters in here? Any, any archery hunters? Okay, a few of you. You pull back your bow, you see it there, you release, but you miss, okay? Bad thing, right? That's a terrible feeling. Now, <clears throat> what matters here in the midst of this is the target. Now, we all understand this, and I hope you understand this. The target for us is Jesus, this is why studying Jesus, his character, his love, his mercy, his compassion is so imperative to us because he is the prototype of what we are daily trying to become. He's the target. Now, I'd love to tell you that every one of us is hitting that target every single day, but we don't. We miss that mark, and when we do, that's called sin. But God's grace is sufficient in that moment for when we miss the mark to bring us back and say, try again. 
okay? Now, how many of you, my archery hunters, would be out in the field and decide one day when you see this giant buck, 14-point buck, biggest thing you've ever seen in your life, and you pull back the bow and you go, I think I'm going to try to hit the tail. I wonder if I could shoot its nose off. Nobody would do that. Here's why. Because in order to successfully bring a deer down in the most humane way possible, there's only about a 12-inch circle in an area on a deer that you've got to hit, the vital organs to bring it down. If you don't aim for that mark, you're not going to be successful. And so this idea of people who have chosen by their own to say, I'm going to live life the way that I want to live it. I'm no longer trying to measure myself up against the word of God, against the son of God, and against the idea of righteousness. I'm going to do what I think is right, what I think is best. I'm going to live life to please me. Just because you said, Jesus, come into my heart, does not mean that God will cover that decision to then turn and walk away. That is apostasy. So here's what we read then on the other side of that, this idea of foreverness. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it says, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. So, we have two ideas here as well, two, two interpretations, excuse me. The first interpretation is this, that because Jesus died on the cross, it's saying he died once and for all, is the interpretation that he has covered every sin that has ever been and ever will be. There will never again be a reason to ask for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus covered it. The second interpretation is to go into what was the practice in the Old Testament, which was the idea of animal sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Again, that's a very long story. I'd share it sometime, but just suffice it to say, they had to offer live animals in sacrifice to be forgiven for their sins. This interpretation would say, no, we don't have to do that anymore. Can I be honest? I'm, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. It would really change my job and the way this building smells if that's what we did. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a butcher shop. It doesn't smell like this. But that's what they had to do. So the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. We don't have to cut up bulls and sheep and lambs and doves or anything else. We don't have to burn anything else on the altar anymore because Jesus was the all-time sufficient sacrifice for sin, for the atoning of sin. And through relationship with Jesus... We can be forgiven of our sins. So again, here's the question. Can you lose your salvation? I think there are a couple of questions here that I would raise in order to kind of spur that idea on. First of all, why would Paul instruct so many times within the New Testament to make sure that people are being restored back to faith in Jesus? In fact, if you read in Galatians chapter 6, that starts off with Paul talking to the Galatian church. He said, you have living among you a man who is living with his stepmother, and he's proud of it, and you're okay with it. That is wrong. And that brother should be expelled from among you. And here's why. He says so that he can be turned over to Satan to be dealt with in this lifetime and not have to do so in the life that is to come. He said, this is important. We can't let sin just go on the way that it is because even somebody who's part of the church 
who is living a lifestyle of sin is still in danger if they say, what I'm doing is okay, it doesn't matter if God says that it's wrong, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. Why would Paul say that? In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2, why would he say to expel brothers who are caught in sin so that they could be saved? In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, why would Paul worry about his thorn in the flesh if salvation is good forever? We read several times <clears throat> that Paul says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. He says, I have a thorn in my flesh that I beg God to take away from me. And time and time again, it didn't happen. But God eventually came to me and said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected in your weakness. Now, if it doesn't matter whether or not we ever sin again, why would Paul even give that a second thought? Wouldn't he just tell everybody, I'm not perfect, but it's okay, we're fine. He says, no, I'm concerned about holiness. Not because it saves me, but because I've got to make Jesus my marker. I've got to make Jesus my aim. I've got to be daily becoming more like Jesus because here's the scary part of this church. And it's a reality for every one of us. Every day, I'm either becoming more like Jesus or I'm becoming more like Chris. There's, we, we love this idea of middle grounds, like I'm at a holding pattern. It doesn't work that way. I'm either becoming more like Jesus or I'm becoming more like the carnal flesh man that I am. And that has to be sacrificed before the Lord. And lastly, why would Paul warn Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, telling them that in the last days, there will be people who, quote unquote, abandon the faith. Meaning, people will turn away from God. The book of Revelation tells us that in the end times, it's called eschatology, that there will be a, a great number of people who turn away from relationship with God. I believe that each of these points to the reality that, yes, you can choose to walk away from relationship with God. Now, church, this matters. This is important. And this is why holiness matters. Again, holiness is not how we become saved. But holiness is an indication that God is working in our hearts. If we say a prayer and then go on to live lives the, however we feel like living them for the rest of our lives, have we truly accepted Jesus into our hearts? Or maybe let me put it this way. Maybe this is something that will hit home a little harder. If I were to go to my wedding day and make a vow to be pledged to my wife, but then went on to commit adultery 15 times, would I still be married to my wife? Would I still be a good husband to my wife? Or would I have forsaken that first covenant, that relationship? I would have broken that promise to my wife. I would have broken our relationship. That covenant would be nullified because of what I've done. And so we need to understand that we can choose to walk away from relationship with God, but not to be in a place of thinking, my salvation is so fragile, if I say a single bad word, I'm not going to heaven. Now, should we be trying to clean up our speech? Absolutely. The book of Philippians says that we should. There should be no unwholesome speech among us. Yes, we need to be cleaning those things up. But God's grace is sufficient as long as we continue to make Jesus the target. Lastly, I wanted to talk about this other question that came to me a number of times. And, and again, there were multiples of these first three questions. But here's the question. What do we do about doubts about God? Because here, here again, and, and I want this to be really something we focus on, because as we're talking about solid theology, 
there's always going to be a nagging part in the background that's asking, do I really believe that? Can, can I just clear the air here for a second? And please hear me. There is not a single person in this room, not one, and I'm not afraid to say that, who has never doubted. Every single person in this room, at some point in their lives, has had to walk through a crisis of faith. Do I really believe what the Bible says? Do I really believe God is who he says he is? Do I really believe his promises? Do I really believe in salvation? I'm struggling here to believe this. I'm struggling here to understand this. I'm, listen, this happens to everyone. And this is why I feel like for us, normalizing the idea of asking questions is so important because we are going through something right now in, in the evangelical church that is honestly quite scary to me. And it's bent on the idea that we were told for so long, you've just got to have blind faith in Jesus. Well, what if, no, just have faith. Okay, but I have a question, just believe. Okay, but what about, no, just have faith. And there's times and times again, that's been the answer to the question. Just have faith, just have faith. And it's created this blind faith. Well, church, now we're at a point in time, a point in history, where we're watching something among evangelical Christians take place called deconstruction. Deconstruction is this. People have been told for too long without answers, just believe. And now they've come to a point in their lives where they're like, if I can't get answers, I can't believe. And if you're telling me that I have a question, that I don't believe in God, then I guess I don't believe in God. Because I have questions, I have concerns, I have doubts. At church, we're watching an entire generation of millennials and Gen Zers go through a deconstruction of faith at a level that has never been experienced before. Now, on one side, that frightens me. Because in the midst of deconstruction, do you know what's highly possible? Is just destruction. I don't know what I believe, so maybe I don't believe any of it. I don't have the answer to this, so maybe I don't believe that. Nobody was able to tell me about this, so maybe that's not true. And it just all, we're like, to just take a, a flame and burn the whole Bible down, burn the whole church down, because I don't believe any of it. I know that sounds very dramatic, but that's the state of what's taking place among young evangelicals. I need answers, and if you won't answer me, I'm out. Church, let's give an answer. Let's give an answer. Because blind faith isn't the answer. Again, I say, there's not a single question that you could ask that's going to send God cowering behind his throne asking the angels, what are we going to do? He has the answer. Jesus is, and I believe this with all my heart, light and truth. What do we mean by that? Wherever there's darkness, wherever there's doubt, wherever there's worry, Jesus is the light that can, can, he can expel that. Wherever there have been lies, wherever there have been misdeeds, wherever trust has been broken, Jesus is truth. And he can bring truth into those situations. And can I tell you, I would rather be asked a thousand questions than watch even one person self-destruct and walk away from God. And I think if we were to stop and ask ourselves, we all think that way. I'd rather be asked a thousand questions. And I don't say that flippantly. I have a 12-year-old son. I get asked a thousand questions daily. I'm not, I know what that feels like. Wouldn't it be better for us to be in the place 
that we're no longer telling people, you've just got to believe. Well, what if I don't believe? You've just got to believe. Well, what about that? You've just got to have faith. Church, we need to normalize asking questions because everybody has doubts. Everybody has days, something they read in scripture, something they're going through in life, a situation, whether they've been harmed by someone or something, where they stop and it is a crisis of faith. Do I really believe that God's a healer? Do I really believe that God speaks to his people? Do I really believe in salvation? Do I really believe in heaven? Do I really believe in creation? Do I, all of these things that can come. And if we can't give an answer, and, and it saddens me to see this because for so long we haven't. And then it shocked us when a young generation walked away. And we're like, they're messed up. They're just, me- those kids, they're just messed up. No, we needed to answer them. And so can I implore you, if you have questions, please come see one of our pastors. Please come knock on my door. Send me an email. Shoot me a text, whatever it is. You, you can have an answer. And if, and if I can't give you, uh, oh, well, it's just this. We'll go through it together. We'll figure it out together because I would so much rather answer a thousand questions than watch you have to walk away from God. You know, one of Jesus' disciples, his name was Thomas. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he went to his disciples and he appeared to them. It says that they're in a locked room and just suddenly Jesus is there and they all see him and they're all like, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. And they're so excited. But Thomas wasn't there. And so the disciples see Thomas later, and they're like, yo, Tom, Jesus is alive. Now, Thomas is one of the apostles, right? One of the disciples, man of faith, walked with God for three years. Do you know what he says? I'll believe that when I can poke his fingers. I'll believe that when I can put my fist in his side where they punctured him. This is the man who walked with God for three years who watched Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're like, hey, Tommy, Jesus is back. And he's like, mm, yeah, doubt it. Can I tell you that if you have doubts, you're in good company? And then when Jesus appeared for a second time among the disciples, Thomas was there. Do you know what he said? He stood up and he said, hey, Tom, your fingers in my wounds. Touch my side. It's me. It's me, Tom. It's okay. Church, that's how God loves. I want to close with this. In Mark chapter 9, there's a man whose daughter is dying and he goes to Jesus and he's, he's like, I need your help. Can you please heal my daughter? If, if you could do anything, please. We read this in verses 23 through 24. Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. Just have faith, right? Just have faith. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Son of God, would you help me? I I do have some nagging unbeliefs that I just need your help with. And Jesus, guess what, didn't say, nope, can't help you. You didn't believe. He says he went and helped him. He healed him. And listen, we, we need to repaint the picture of Jesus. 
He's not angry with his arms crossed wondering why you struggle in your faith. He's not hiding behind his throne worried about your questions. He's standing there and he says, I got answers. Come and talk to me. Can I challenge you if you have questions about God? Number one, I'll say it again. Do not, and I repeat, do not go to YouTube. They do not have the answers. All they have is cameras and an internet connection. You can find somebody who agrees with you. You can find somebody who disagrees with you. You can find somebody who's insane. They've got a following, so good. Please go see one of your pastors. Please go to a brother or sister in Christ, somebody in this room who maybe has walked with God for 10, 15 years. Go to a friend who maybe you're growing together. Hey, let's go together and talk to somebody. Let's try to figure this out because there are answers. There are answers. And Jesus is not going to cross his arms and say, what's the matter with you for asking me a question? He says, I've got the answers for you. Just come and see me. Church, we've got to not be afraid to ask questions. If we could turn that narrative around, I believe that there's a generation, and I say this somewhat selfishly, for my kids, for your kids, that might not have to walk away from God because we were willing to answer their questions instead of just telling them, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. We can do better than that. So I want to finish this morning by praying for those of you who might be in the room today who have questions. Maybe there are doubts in your mind. Maybe there are things you're saying, I don't know what to do with this. I can't reconcile this to this. I want to pray for you this morning, not in a condemning way like what's wrong with you, but pray that God himself would just nudge you gently and say, it's okay. It's okay. Let's find the answer together. Let's pursue this together. Let's find a, a place where we get good theology together because the answers are available. So can I ask you to stand as we close together? I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. I'm not going to ask you to come up. I just want to pray for you. And if you are one of those people, I'm praying for you. I, I really am right now. And I want to believe God with you to help you find the answers that you've been seeking. So God, I just pray right now in Jesus' name that just as compassionately as you did for Thomas, as you stood there and you said, here I am. It's me. It's the real me. I can offer you proof if you need proof. God, I pray right now that you would do that for those in here who are in a place of questioning, who have doubts, who have things that they can't reconcile, who've been experiencing crises of faith, who just, they're almost sometimes ready to give up because some of it just doesn't make sense. God, would you just begin to challenge them and speak to them? Would you nudge on them, God, to come see me or one of our pastors, come see a brother or sister in Christ, someone who can walk hand in hand with them to help them get the answers that they need? And God, I pray your forgiveness. With all sincerity, God, I ask for your forgiveness for any harm that's been done to someone by telling them just have faith. God, I pray that we would be willing to do better than that and be good teachers, have sound theology and doctrine, know the word of God, and be able to teach others to follow you the way that we do. God, I pray that we would be a people who make you the target of our lives every day. That we would choose you and choose to become more like you, realizing we'll never be perfect. We're still going to fall short. 
We're still going to sin, but that your grace is sufficient to cover us on that journey. We thank you, God, that you are with us and that you love us. I pray your blessings over your people as we go today. I pray that you will cause us to see your goodness in new lights and new ways, that you will expel darkness from among us and destroy every lie that might eat away at your people. You are light, you are truth, you are love. And we invite you to be those things in every single person in here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, ask your questions. Love on each other. Be family to one another. Our prayer team will be up here at the front if you need prayer this morning. We'd like to talk with someone to ask a question. Uh, Come on up and get some prayer to talk to somebody. The Lord bless you. Have a wonderful day and be in the glory of Jesus.